1: What's going on, y'all? It's your host, Will. Coming back for another episode of the Stand Podcast. On today's episode, bringing on a good friend and bona fide high country velvet muley public land DIY do-it-all over-the-counter man himself, Mr. Joe Cavanaugh. Now, Joe's a really good friend of mine. We've known each other for a few years now. We've worked in the industry together in other places. And so just getting Joe on here to pick his brain on how he does this every time he draws a tag. Now recently, he's drawn a coveted tag to chase after big horn sheep up in the mountains of Colorado with his bow. So that's going to be a really cool hunt to see. I can't wait to follow up and see how he does on that hunt this fall, but we get John here so I could pick his brain and find out how he is successful. Every time he gets one of these muley tags, I mean, y'all, he is putting down some studs, some awesome muleys. Every time he gets his tag, he just, he doesn't, I know there's lots of trials and tribulations behind it. And so I want to get John here so y'all can learn from him and how he approaches going after these high country muleys. You know what, if you're like me, when I go to Colorado, I'm primarily going after elk and I may or may not have a mule deer tag in my pocket. So that way, if I'm out in the elk woods and I just happen to see a really, really good mule deer buck that I want to shoot, I've got that opportunity. But Joe specifically just puts that mule deer tag in his pocket. And so I'm talking to all you guys and gals out there that are just like that, or you might even be chasing after elk and you want to know, hey, there's just no elk here i'm gonna switch it up and we're going after some mules i've been seeing some mule deer and so we're gonna get john here to talk about that how he attacks these areas what he does from e-scouting to being out in the woods and then glassing and just everything and in between and so i want to get john here to talk about that and again y'all we just want to thank all of y'all for your support of the hunt stand podcast we greatly appreciate it if you haven't yet Make sure you're either following, subscribe to the podcast. Make sure your rate review really helps us out. And if you got anything you want us to talk about, if there's a topic out there that you think we should be covering, or you got questions for us, hit me up, send me an email to podcast at huntstand.com. That way I know your voice is heard. So I'm gonna quit rambling, I'm gonna get into it with Joe, pick his brain. We appreciate y'all for tuning in and we hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, back to another Hunt Stand podcast, and today we got Mister Joe Cavanaugh. Joe, I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast with us today to talk about some high country mule deer.
2: I appreciate uh, you having me.
1: Absolutely, brother. I know we've we've uh, got a little bit of a pass together, and you know, gotten to shoot some bows together and do some cool stuff together. And so, man, one of the things I like to do because the audience doesn't know you like I do. I mean, I, I know all your little your little secrets so <laughs> i want you to give everybody kind of the 30 foot tree stand view of who joe is you know where you're from what you're doing and let's you know talk about your passion for hunting
2: all right cool yeah i was uh born and raised in uh central minnesota and that's where i uh i really kicked off the the passion for archery hunting i uh i you're 12 years old is when the legal age, right? Or when I was 12, that was a legal age to hunt archery. So um, yeah, just hunting with my dad from a tree stand, whitetails. I mean, that's basically all we hunted in Minnesota, or all we had the opportunity to hunt. So really, kind of um, you know, put the foundation for my passion of of archery hunting, and that took me all the way up into uh, through college, and then you know the real world came came knocking i guess and uh had to take a real world job and and that actually brought me to florida and i lived in florida until i was 29 or 30 years old and um and worked for the same company and and then ultimately had the opportunity to move out to colorado and you know even when i was growing up i was watching the outdoor channel and everything and i would see you know, not very many shows had high country mule deer, but, but some did. And I always was intrigued by that. So when I moved out here, that was, um, you know, really my main focus when I was going to come out here. And, and so, um, you know, now I live in Denver, been out here five for, or going on s- six years, going on seven. So, you know, and, and since day one, I've really immersed myself into, you know, what I like to call this, you know, back country, high country hunting community. And, and, uh, you know, Will, that's kind of how I met you is, is through this and, um, you know, through some other companies that we, uh, that we, that we knew of. And, um, and so, yeah, now it's really kind of, you know, my, my number one passion, at least for September is, is high country mule deer. And, and, you know, I get made fun of quite a bit being out here in Colorado is, I would put this above elk hunting, um, you know, and, and what? a lot of, my buddies, a lot of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of my buddies go, what are you talking about? And, and honestly, I don't, I drew my mule deer tag or, or a mule deer tag, uh, this year. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'll buy a, uh, an elk tag for archery. So we'll see. I mean, I, I like to kind of go all in on, um, trying to find the biggest buck in the unit and trying to put a game plan together to, uh, to kill that buck um you know obviously it's easy to put things on on paper and make a plan and then once the season rolls around things change but um i would rather uh have more preparation done early than uh than not so yeah that's a high uh, ten thousand foot view or tree stand view of of my career and where i at where i am now and but uh but yeah
1: i like it brother i like it so I know you and I have talked behind the scenes on this, but why don't you tell everybody kind of that coveted tag that you have drawn this year?
2: Yeah, so this year is going to be a little bit different because I did I did draw a big horn um, Rocky Mountain sheep tag in Colorado, and so uh, normally, you know, Will and I were talking about this podcast. I go into how many weekends I'll be scouting and this and that. Well. When you draw a tag like this, which is you know basically a once in a lifetime tag, I mean I, I I'm fairly young, but you know there could be an outside chance that I draw it again, you know, years and years down the road. but at that point where I drew this tag, I, I don't know if I'll physically able to do it, but um but yeah, I found out about that about a month ago, and so uh, fortunately, It's an area where I had one of my good buddies draw two years ago, Fred Bohm, which, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I spent a ton of time with him uh, two years ago. And and unfortunately, he didn't uh, kill anything. But I learned that unit probably better than most people. Um, I think I was up there like 32 or 33 days between scouting and hunting. Um, And then uh, just crazy enough. Last year, our 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 buddy, who you know, Braden Forth- Forth- Forsyth, he killed a giant in there. Yeah, um, a giant to me um, with his bow, and uh, I was on him on, or I was with him on that hunt. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, but uh, but yeah. So over the last two years, I've been uh, I've spent quite a few nights and uh, scouting trips, hunting trips with guys up in this unit. So. You know I don't want to uh you know be overconfident obviously this this area can humble you really quick just because of how you know extreme and how hard the hunting is but but yeah that is gonna be all of August it starts August one um and and you know I've already made arrangements that i uh I'm probably not gonna be coming down off the mountain anytime you know maybe just to re refuel up and you know get a shower in me but um but yeah, I'm going to be all all in on that tag. Um, and then obviously, scouting, that's going to take up all of July, you know, all, mm-hmm. all three day weekends and stuff. So, but, uh, but yeah, that's going to cut into my scouting for, for mule deer, I'll tell you that. But, you know, I wouldn't have it
1: any other way, honestly. Man, I'm jealous. That's a heck of a tag to draw. So, but okay. Yeah. Let's get on the mule deer, man. I want, I really want to pick your brain because you've killed some bruisers over the past few years. You've been with people who've killed some bruisers. And I think there's a lot of people that, um, you know, we were just talking before the podcast, right? That, you know, the majority of the people that go out West, I mean, a lot of people are non-resident. And so it's really hard to get boots on the ground scouting like you do. And so, of course, I want to talk how to scout like that. I want to talk e-scouting and just kind of dive into that high country, mule deer, man. And so I guess the first place to start that I'd like to ask you is, you know, how difficult is it to get, you know, specifically to Colorado, how difficult is it to get one of those archery mule deer tags?
2: Yeah, well, I'll start by saying, um, you know, I'm probably your average Joe type hunter. Uh, you know, I, I don't have years and years of experience like a Brian Barney or or some of those guys that are just absolute killers and and really, you know, are the, are the, 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 the peak of, of mule deer hunting. But, you know, for me, it was something where, you know, I, I started to look at different areas that looked, good or where i was seeing you know mule deer and 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 i really focus in on the high country you know there's there's a few different areas that you can hunt mule deer in colorado and and a lot of people see the hunting shows out in eastern colorado in the plains and like the flatlands um out there and, and unfortunately those are i would say the majority of the big deer that are killed there on private land i, I would say the vast majority and, and so, you know, you would have to use an outfitter or no people that have land. And, and so, um, you know, once you get up into the mountains, that's where a lot of the, you know, the BLM land and the national forest, the wilderness areas are all, are all available to the public. So, you know, it's really the choice on what you want to do, but how hard these tags are going to be, it really depends on each unit. And, and we were talking before the podcast, how the, some of the units that I hunt. Have the same draw stats as a resident versus non resident, which is very unusual if you're thinking in the sense of like elk hunting, where a resident probably has, you know, it might only take five points to draw a nice, a good unit, but it might take a non resident 10 points. So, you know, I would say narrowing down where you wanna hunt, what you wanna hunt, like the terrain you wanna hunt in is gonna be number one and then looking at those units that have that. And I and I've always focused in on, you know, these high country above tree line units. And um, you know, and that and that's really where I've started and that's where I've really, I guess, cut my teeth and and once you get into it, you're gonna start kind of connecting the dots for where deer like to hang out, where they like to feed, where they like to bed. Um, and, and then from there, it's kind of looking, moving into the online e scouting, if you will, and finding those basins or ridge lines or mountaintops that look like where you've seen deer. And and I would say the majority of the time, if if you've seen deer in one area and it looks good, there's a solid chance that there's going to be deer in the other area.
1: Yeah.
2: So, you know, that's kind of where I start. But but from a non-resident versus resident standpoint, it, it's really you know, there isn't too many units out here in Colorado that are, you know, more than a few points, um, at least in the high country. I mean, if you have, you know, two or three years of points, you're probably going to have a fairly good chance of drawing most of the units. There's obviously some outliers with that that are just higher higher density deer or yeah. maybe just less tags. Okay.
1: So I want to go and step into e-scouting. You know, let's talk to that guy that... Let's say he drew his first mule deer tag. He's gone to Colorado and he's elk hunted once or twice, right? And he's been in a unit where he's actually run across mule deer, and he pulls a tag there. So he pulls that tag, and now it's e scouting season. So, what are kind of what are the major key points or key features you're looking at when you're starting to e scout for that unit?
2: Yep. So, you know, the fortunate thing about Colorado is, is you know, every, or we'll kind of back up, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, they need to have water, they need to have food, they need to have, you know, places to bed. You know, Colorado, for the most part, the high country, those basins are going to have water and, and a lot of times um, there's a lot of water, like it's almost like a slough, like swamp area. So water, at least the areas that I've hunted, aren't that it, it, it's not like you've got to find water holes or anything like that. Um, but you know, for the people that have been up there and, and looked into areas and like, Hey, I've elk hunted, I've seen some, some good deer. It's kind of just looking at where you saw them and what type of terrain it was. And, you know, was it a, up in the rocks because you know i doubt they but were they pushed up there because you were hunting elk um you know was it high country basins was it you know high country you know kind of glass or grassy flatland you know flats up there that they're feeding on um and once you identify that if you've seen deer in those areas what i like to do is just kind of look in the unit that you can hunt and find those areas that look similar and for me you know, I have the luxury of, you know, it's only a, you know, two to four hour drive or more depending on where I'm hunting. Uh, So I can get these, you know, weekend scouting trips and kind of check off some of these areas. And what I'm doing is just trying to draw comparisons between areas that I know have produced or I've seen deer in Mm -hmm. and what are these other areas that look similar. And then I go in and check those areas out. And I would say, the people that are wanting to scout for mule deer i would say that would be my number one thing is what i'm looking at like when i'm sitting watching tv i'm pulling up the maps and just kind of scanning through you know whatever whatever app you're using or google earth or, or whatever else is trying to find those areas that look good putting a pin from that point and then once you're there if you can't do any scouting You almost need to look at like if the average hunter is taking a a 10-day trip or a seven-day trip, and maybe you've only been in the the unit once and you know that, okay, I've seen deer here, but I want to check out all of these. Is it actually doable for you to check out those areas? Because logistically, you might not be able to get into a basin. It might take you a day or two. Well, that's all good if there's deer in there but if you've never been in there and there's not deer there, maybe there's other areas you can check out that aren't going to burn up a full day. Um, and so that's kind of where the next layer of scouting is looking on these maps of, Hey, do you have to hike in? Well, think about, you know, everybody looks and you can draw the line of how far it is. And you're like, wow, that's four miles back in. Well, if you're four miles back in with camp, food, how quick can you actually get back there? Um, and actually scout. And, you know, obviously the best times to scout are going to be at first light and at last light, you know, the hour after first light and the, you know, half an hour, hour before, you know, sundown. And and so, you know, I always, I like to give a basin or an area that I'm scouting a minimum of an evening and a morning, Mm -hmm. you know, before I say, this is a this is a this is a spot where I'm gonna hunt, or this isn't a spot where deer are. So, you know, that's a lot of time invested, especially if you can't scout. But, you know, that's how you learn these different areas is you gotta be able to put the time in. Well,
1: what are you know when you're e-scouting, you know, let's take a step back for a second. Like when you're e-scouting, you know, what altitude are you looking for? Like are you trying to find water? Are you looking for like those? micro meadows per se, like what, what, what are those exact detailed things you're looking for when e scouting?
2: Yeah. Well, and the majority of the stuff that I'm looking at is right at about tree line. Um, you know, I, I, I've hunted a few different units and, and each unit is actually different on how I've scouted or, or hunted it. Okay. Uh, You know, one unit was, all I looked at was high country basins, probably up at, 11,000, you know, 11,000 feet up to, you know, 12,500 feet. And the majority of the deer were in these basins and they were filled with willows. And these willows were anywhere from knee high to like nine or 10 feet high. And literally there was like tunnels where the deer would cross from, you know, willow patch to willow patch. And that was an extremely hard way to hunt. Because a lot of these, you know, high country mule deer shows that you've seen or heard about is stalking in and shooting them from the bed. Well, that wasn't it. And it took me a year or two to figure that out. You know, and then I started to figure out, okay, these are the type of high country basins these deer live in. And then the other units I've looked at have been the deer simply bed up in the rock cliffs. I mean, very similar to like sheep, just not so high and then they feed down into those little meadows that everyone's seen you know on the peaks where it's rocks slide and then all of a sudden you'll see this you know bright green face that might be you know the reason it's so green is there's still like a snow cornice up top and it's you know melting down and it's just lush green grass well that's a little bit different and you got to be able to find those and you know what's the crazy thing about e scouting is you got to look at when those pictures were taken from satellite because if they were taken in november there might be snow on the ground or maybe everything's dead so you seeing it you don't even know if it's just dirt or if it's grass or so all that stuff kind of goes into play and and actually i don't know with what i think google or you can look at where the timestamp of that picture was taken um, and you can go on different apps, and some have different pictures and everything, and different overlays. But you know, it's just kind of figuring out what is in that unit um, that you're hunting, and where do the deer live? And that's where it's, you know, like I say, and they could live in the rocks and up in these cliff bands where they're really tucked in, and those are going to give you opportunity to stalk in and shoot them when they're in their bed. And then these other willow basins, I mean the moment they're not on their feet, they disappear. And and, I mean, they disappear quick because these beds that they're in are truly their beds that they've bedded in all summer. You know, probably once they got up there, you know, in late spring and that now they're staying there until, I mean, some might stay in there until mid September. So, Uh. you know, and that's also like one of the things that I, you hear a lot of people say is, I want to be such a good hunter and and be able to hunt all these different areas and be successful. That's awesome. I just I would rather myself personally would like to get to know a few different units and know them enough to be like if I drew a tag in there and I don't have the time to scout, I'm still going to be able to be successful or at least know where to start. And that's where I would say these these people that maybe. They can come every other year. I would say pick a unit, and if you see deer and have a fun hunt, stay in that unit and just try to learn it a little bit better. And and you know that just goes right back into whitetail hunting. You know, you hunt a piece of property or or, or a piece of ground, you're gonna start to see how deer movement is, and you're gonna pick up on that. But if you've only hunted it a week a year, you're not gonna learn that. You know, yeah. and that's you know whitetail 101.
1: You know, going back to the monthly imagery which you're talking about, uh, hunt stand, we actually have that option where you can go back and look kind of month to month.
2: Oh, that's awesome! Perfect. Yeah. Like, a yeah, because that's a huge help. You know, at least for my e scouting. So
1: yeah, it's it's pretty big. I we use it a lot. So yeah. Okay, so what's the what's the elevation range? I know, like each. Each unit is different, but kind of kind of give us that elevation range that you're looking in for a lot of yep. these deer.
2: So for me, like I said, I'm in the high country. That's what I really focus in on. And I would say, you know, the deer are anywhere from, you know, and I actually have my maps pulled up now and I'm looking and I, you know, I'm seeing these basins that I'm hunting in are anywhere from 11,400 all the way up. I got pins of where deer have all the way up to about 12, 5, 12, 6. Okay. Um, and it's, and it's everywhere in between now, but I'll tell you a, a few years back, I also hunted a, a, uh, unit that they were down in the, the, um, the sage flats. And really? I mean, it was hotter than crap. I mean, it was like a hundred degrees or it felt like a hundred degrees. And they were just, go. they were, I mean, just bedding in these little Aspen groves, I mean, so similar to like how elk would be, you know? And so it's just going to depend on what type of hunt you want. Yeah. For me, I want to be above treeline. I want to, I want to not only battle the physical part of hiking up and down, you know, a thousand, 13, 1400 vertical feet a day, you know, if not more, you might do that twice a day, but then also the elements of, you know, everybody that's hunted Colorado knows these, these storms are wicked. I want to deal with that. I want to use that, you know, as my, sometimes to my advantage and sometimes it kicks, kicks my ass and I got to get off the mountain. But to me, that that's what brings the excitement and the joy of not only having to, you know, c- Battle the deer that is obviously a much better, um, a much better animal to to be able to survive. But then also you got to deal with all these elements, and I just think that's like the total package for me of what I like to do. I like that. I like that. But, you like yeah. to brave the storm. Well, well, hey, and you know as well as I do, some of those storms can be absolutely wicked, and, and I mean, legitimately blow you off the mountain. <laughs> All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick
1: break to hear a word from our sponsors. The HuntStand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. Up next, Federal Premium. Go beyond what you ever thought possible with Federal Premium Terminal Ascent. Bonded construction penetrates deep on close targets, while the patented slipstream polymer tip initiates expansion at velocities 200 feet per second over the comparable designs. The bullet's long, sleek profile offers an extremely high ballistic coefficient, and its AccuChannel Groove technology improves accuracy and minimizes drag. And finally, we've got Work Sharp Tools, the knife sharpening company. We just wanted to thank all of our partners of the Hunt Stand Podcast, and we're going to get right back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Yes, they can. They can definitely kick you where it hurts. So, okay, you, you've done your e-scouting, right? right, you you've got your tag in hand, you've done your e-scouting, and I know we've kind of talked about, you know, it, once you finally get those boots on the ground, kind of exploring basins and trying not to waste too many days, but kind of tell us, like, wh- what's your next step in the Joe Cavanaugh process of killing giant muleys up in the high country? You know, you've done those things, what's next on Joe's book?
0: Yeah. Well,
2: so I guess it's twofold. So I'll kind of talk about the scouting process, but then let's say maybe we don't have that. And I'll kind of go into what I would do like this year where I might not have the ability to scout. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, I I don't really, especially in Colorado this year, there's a lot of snow. Um, you know, and I think you're, you know, seeing a lot of that in Montana and everything with the runoffs and all these rivers and everything. There's, there's just a lot of snow in some areas. It's insane. Uh, Yeah. So for me I like to get all my preparation done in June and then have a have a good 4th of July enjoy yourself and then I am really every weekend in July I'm scouting. And so for me what that means is, you know, if I draw a if it was a normal year and I didn't have a sheet tag, um antelope season starts the 15th. So however that works out is it four weekends of scouting, or is it five? Um, Or, you know, some people like uh, the the TAC events, they got to throw that in there. So I look at it, how many weekends do I have? And if I have four weekends to scout, I am choosing four different areas to scout. And I am going in, and that could mean that I spend one evening and a morning in another basin, and that could be Friday night, Saturday morning. And then I leave and hike into another basin, and I spend Saturday night sunday morning and then i'm hiking out i'm a, I'm a weekend warrior type scouting and i think unless you're after a, a big deer i would rather go in and find multiple shooters in that unit because just like we talked about it's so populated there is so many people you know it doesn't matter about the tags the last two three years i have never ran into more people in the high country than i have so you gotta have those backup plans. And so each unit, I'm just taking inventory of what I see. Now, I'll give you an example of last year. I scouted this basin. It was a first basin because I knew it very well. And there was four or five good bucks. And they could have turned into turned into though well, they did turn into shooters. Um, and what I say a shooter for me is, you know, any 175, 180 plus. Like that's what I, the caliber of deer. Obviously, judging deer can be difficult, but in my mind, that's what I'm trying to find. Yeah. And there was one deer in there that literally I was like, wow, if this guy blows up, he's going to be huge. And he did. Um, but I also, this wasn't because I scouted it early. I never saw his progression from the first week of July all the way up to. September 2nd, and he had grown a ton. But I looked at three or four different areas, and, you know, through social media, and I had another buddy that I was hunting with, it was like every basin I wanted to go into, I knew someone else was going to go into there. So this was actually like my third or fourth basin, but it had a ton of bucks in it. And these bucks just, I was on a stock almost every day, and I actually had another group of guys who turned out to be just really cool dudes. It was like, you know, the first time hunting or they had been up there a few times, but we worked together and, you know, it worked out well. But for me, the scouting part of it is about narrowing down where are you going to put your chips during hunting? And to me, it's having that plan A, plan B, plan C. So, I understand that people that don't have the amount of time to scout like I do can't do that. But what I would say is, is if you didn't have any scouting, I would just try to be compiling as much information from people that you hunted that unit or that gave you information, but still put together, this is my A basin. Well, let's say you get to that trailhead and there is three pickup trucks and they're all archery hunters and you know they're all going in there which well, is very likely to happen very likely so then you could go to b and then let's say the same thing happens then you can go to c and but if you already have that planned out in your mind if if you if you don't and one fails you're going to kind of be like oh shoot what do i do now but if you're like nope no big deal i'm going to b oh no big deal that one's packed i'm going to c it doesn't stress you out. And I don't think you get the anxiety of like, oh, I just spent all this money, wasted all this time, all this vacation time or whatever you're doing. I just think having that plan ahead of time is going to, I guess, relieve the stress and where you can focus that energy on other things rather than, you know, having a plan or shoot, like even downloading the right maps. Like, you know, some of these units are giant, you know, you can't download all the maps to your phone or you bog it down or, or, you know, having that all downloaded beforehand. So you don't have to get out to service again, you know, cause that's a big issue. Once you get into these back countries, service isn't, isn't, you know, it's not great, you know, unless you get up way up high. So just having those plans in place. So you're not sitting there, you know, twiddling your thumbs at the trailhead, wondering what to do. You can actually make a decision and go, okay, I'm I'm pulling out and I'm going to plan B. I like it. Yeah. That's,
1: that's happened to me before with elk hunting. I've had the greatest plan in the world set up and I show up at the trailhead and it's like, crap there. Yep. Cause more than likely, like, you know, just like you said, I mean, more than likely there's, you know, if, if you've got a good plan, somebody else has the same exact good plan. If not a few more people.
2: Mhm. Well, and, and that, that happened to me last year. So I, uh, I actually had an issue with my side by side. So I drove my truck to the trailhead and there was these guys and, uh, it wasn't an easy drive and they were actually on four wheelers. They're like, how the hell did you get your truck up here? Um, and I told them, I go, Hey, it wasn't easy. And I go, I'm not leaving for at least six days. I go, I got six days worth of food. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in. And they were cool about it. And I said, let's work together, you know, and and so don't always get discouraged with, with people there, but you know, ultimately, regardless of how nice people are, I would say <laughs> the majority, they want to fill a tag. Yeah. And so you have to understand that as well Is that everybody has their own motivation, spent their own time, money. Yes. It's all nice to say on Instagram of I didn't kill anything, but I had a good time and this and that. Well, that might be some people, that isn't me. I mean, I, I am a very one or the other, and I either, you know, my success is 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 viewed on did I did I take an animal or not? you know, and i I know that's a little narrow minded, but that's for me is where I am. and and you know, I guess I'll caveat that with saying, if there just isn't a qual a caliber of buck in the unit that I've found and I put in the time, I, I guess I wouldn't say that's a failure. I would just say that's a bad a bad year and, and not a lot of good deer. And I probably wouldn't look in that unit again. Yeah. But you know, that does happen. So Okay. Well, the
1: ne the next thing I kind of want to dive into, you know, unless you've got some other little nuggets to give us from that perspective, is I want to dive into glassing because mm-hmm. and the reason I bring this up is I do feel like this is in Underestimated, overlooked component when it comes to mule deer hunting. I think there's a lot of people that may not necessarily know how to do it well and effectively, that they might just be glassing right over a 160, 70, 180 class buck. So, kind of give us, kind of give us, you know, are you using some 15 binos? You got scopes, like, What's Joe doing and what kind of tips can you give the listeners to glass up a big bug?
2: Yeah. Well, I would say the first tip is... is, And I'm going to take this from Brian Barney is finding that master vantage point. He he loves the term master vantage point. I, I think it's... I love using it. And I laugh every time I say it. But it's like finding that master vantage point to be able to you know, the basin that you're in so you can see as much of that basin as possible mm-hmm. or, or the area that you're wanting to hunt. I I can't stress that enough of, you know, even moving a hundred yards or up or down, or you know, it, it just changes angles and it's gonna depend on, you know, are you trying to pick up these deer? when they're feeding, or are you going to try to pick them up as you're as a, when they are in their beds. And that's going to depend on the terrain that you're in and, in the, you know, if they are bedded up in the rocks, it's going to be like trying to, you know, you are just focusing in and looking for that antler turn or the ear twitch, you know, or are they feeding and you're just scanning and trying to find when they pop out through the willows or maybe the sparse trees, you know, the pines that are, you know, there's just a few pines around, but for me, number one is finding those master vantage points. So you can see as much of that basin as possible. Yeah. And, you know, once you find that, um, I, I have, um, uh, 12 by 42s, um, that I use that are just on my tre- chest rig, um, uh, my chest to harness. And I would say until I spot deer, Um that's where uh, I am just on those and and I will use those on a tripod. Um, but then I'll also freehand them, which you know, I'm got my, you know, my my elbows on my knees and I'm in a you know little crouch position. So it's not like I'm freehanding them per se, but you know, and I am just scanning and and everybody does different. You know, some people do the grid search of you know, they're kind of around. I kind of do a combination of that. I, I know where the deer should be. And so I'm focusing in on those areas first. Now, I can't stress this enough. You got to be there. Like If you're at your master vantage point and you can already see the deer, you're there too late. You got to be there. It's almost like whitetail hunting. Like I argue with my dad so much. He wants to get into the stand and sit there for five minutes and then be able to shoot. You know, <laughs> I want to get there like thirty minutes or forty-five minutes before I get all my stuff and gear checked out. And I'm sitting there just silent until you can shoot. Yeah. You know, and so I like to get there a little bit early, if possible. You know, and then get everything set up. And now you're scanning even before you probably could shoot, but your binos should like get in enough light. So I like to do kind of those blanket scans. Um, and then I don't pull out the spotter really until I see a deer, because even with 12s, I'm not looking, you know, there might be some areas where I'm at a mile, mm-hmm. but you should be able to pick out if that's a big deer, even with 12s, at least yeah, I can, for sure. you know, for but sure. then once you, you know, if they are a ways away, you pop up the spotter, And then that's when you're starting to look at what type of deer that is. And mule deer in the early season, they're bunched up. They're going to be in a herd. And so if you see one, there's more likely going to be a few around. They might be spread out, but there's going to, it's very seldom ever see just one deer all by itself all the time. I I just haven't seen many of that um, in Colorado, but you know, for me, and then, you know, I got a, a 30 by 70 you know 95 mil spotter so you know i can really zoom in and you know pick out pick out the bucks that are good do they have little kickers you know how deep are their forks what's the way and you really can start you know doing the math on on what that deer is going to score um especially once you put you've seen pictures or have seen other deer that you've killed where you're like well this mine was 180 this one's way bigger this guy's got to be pushing, you know, 195 to 200. Well, okay. That's a shooter that that that's something that I'm going to put my, you know, all my eggs in one basket and try to kill, you know? And, and uh, so, you know, that's where I do it. But I mean, it is, you'd be surprised that, you know, I don't know if it's moon phase or weather, you know, these deer will move late into the day. Um, in some sometimes midday, but I would say you gotta be on those master vantage points at the first, first light and last light. And, and, you know, I, I, just saw something. It's like, or a red, I can't remember where I saw it, but like not worrying about hiking in the dark. Like I have so many of my friends that are like, well, nothing's here. Sun's going down. It's like, guys, th- that deer could be better. And he could just come out with like 10 minutes left. And that could be you staying in that basin to kill that deer or moving on to somewhere where you don't know, you know, if there's deer around and, and that's something where I would, you know, it's saying, Hey, put in, put in the extra 30 minutes there. It, it's like, who cares if you get back late, you know, you're up there to do, to do something and it's to put a deer on the ground or at least to find what caliber of deer it, it, you know, the only time you're going to regret that is when you're driving back home in the truck going, man, I probably should have stayed that extra 30 minutes till dark to see if anything popped out.
1: That's the golden hour, man. That's the magic time. That's when all the magic happens. You don't want to miss <laughs> that.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, we did that. I mean, heck, I mean, we did the same thing when I was uh mule deer hunting in Arizona in January. I mean, yeah, sure. We're not up, you know, at eleven, twelve thousand 12,000 feet, but we were putting in two miles before the sun came up, getting to a good glassing knob that we found through e-scouting and getting set up on that so that as soon as it started getting to that gray light and starting to get light. Then all of a sudden there's deer all around us. So yeah. 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 Can't miss that magical hour. So yeah. uh, we've kind of covered scouting. We, we've covered glassing. Now I want to talk about the stock that I feel like this is, uh, from my perspective, I feel like this is probably the toughest part about it all because some like sometimes you can just get dumb lucky and you can find every deer and you didn't put any scouting in but then comes the stock man so kind Mm -hmm. of talk us through you know how you like to approach that scenario that after you find that buck in the glass it's a buck that you want to go after talk us through your process
2: yeah well number one obviously the wind right you know that is the most important. You know, and then I would say noise number two. Yeah. Um, you know, where elk hunting, you can get away with noise. You can't. No hunting, you're gonna get away with with uh, with smell. Um, but for me, it goes back to scouting again and understanding the thermals. And you got to understand when those thermals will switch in the day, because every basin is facing a different direction, meaning one side might be getting this early sun, you know, the sun rising other side, you know, when the sun is setting and really understanding that. So when you're in those basins, you know, scouting, it's not just willy nilly, just sitting your ass on the thing, looking through glass. Like I am constantly like, Oh, when a storm's coming in, what happens? You know does the wind shift where do the storms come from do they do they all of a sudden switch the thermals or the directional wind you know and in colorado and i think this is probably everywhere the the directional wind is very difficult to predict it's really you know and, and you know that from elk hunting and so does everybody else but you know understanding the thermals is so key in when those switch in the day and you know in the mornings they're sucking down the hill. Well, when does that change? You know, I've been in basins where the thermals didn't change until like 11 o'clock. And it was like within the five, 10 minutes every morning of the same time. I've also been in basins where those thermals change at like eight and you better get your ass down there before they change and try to get up under that deer. Otherwise you're going to blow them out. So mine is always, and, and what I also am doing, even on the stock, I am constantly checking the wind, looking at where the sun is, looking at what the you know clouds are doing. Is a storm rolling in? What happens? So when you know, like, even if you don't go in to like on a stock to kill, like you just maybe want to cut the distance and maybe just get lucky that he walks into you. But always learning what those wind patterns are going to do because they're called a pattern for a reason that you know, given a, a storm or, or something different in the weather, the wind is probably going to be fairly consistent, at least in the early season, you know, when, when it's, you know, blue skies and sunny and, and a consistent wind, those are going to be the same. So, um, you know, and then once you get that down and you know that you can get in, I have two thought processes on stocking mule deer. And, and this is just my opinion. Um, and it depends on where I am. If it's in the cliffs, which I've done a lot of hunting in where, you know, the willows, maybe they're only a knee high, you know, and you could see the the deer, you know, you can get above them and get an arrow into the deer when it's bedded, or if they just need to get up and you can get in close, you know, and, and I, even then I still don't like to get within. You know, anything closer than like 40 or 50 yards, depending on the terrain. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather hang back because I feel that if you're too close, those mule deer don't get up and look at you like, what are you? If they see you, they just bolt. You know, if you're at that 50, 60, 70 yard mark, they kind of look and go, what are you? And might give you that, that extra bit of time, you know, to get a shot off. Um, but that's in the cliffs, you know, where you're actually going in and, and you're, you know, you're taking your boots off. It's a boots off situation and you're, you're putting on the extra layer of socks or your spotting shoes or, or, or stocking shoes, I guess. Um, and going in to try to kill that deer either in its bed or when they get up to shift. Right. Um, and I've done it and I've done a lot of those stocks and a lot and failed a lot of those stocks. Um, mm-hmm. the other The other part is is where if they're in the willows you know it's 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 very hard to get in tight to them because the willows are so tall it doesn't matter if they stand up their vitals are still going to be covered and even if you're at a distance your arrow angle isn't going to be able to arc over those willows unless they're like in a little bit of a meadow area so on those like I've recently done where I kind of hang out and I know where they are and if the wind is good like that the big buck that I killed 2 years ago yeah um or yeah 2 years ago um I sat on him for like 8 hours and I got to a spot that I was about 300 yards away and I knew the wind was bulletproof there was it was just it was perfect it was a directional wind And I, I knew even when the sun was going to go down, it was going to run down the mountain and he was basically parallel. And he actually walked into the wind up the mountain. And I, and I basically had a lane that I could basically parallel him and angling closer. And I basically cut him off, but I don't think I would have been able to get down there. If I was at my vantage point which would have been like a half mile away. He would have been too far up the basin by the time I got there. And so I think sitting on them where you know you're not going to get winded is going to be key. And then have an p- approach where you're going to be concealed to cut him off as they're feeding. And, you know, that's also going to depend on how many other bucks he's with and how high the willows are. So you've got to take in consideration how, how that looks you know, or what you've seen, either where you've been in that basin or online for what opportunities you can get there. Um, and, and last year I was, I was on a, you know, I missed, a I missed a, a 200 in, I would say it was going to be like 200 to 210, Um, and I missed him oh. three times, <laughs> but every day I got onto him and I, and I did the exact same thing. I sat in the spot And I knew the thermals and everything were exactly the same. The directional wind did not change and he would get up and start moving. And then I would literally just kind of belly crawl or crab crawl through these willows. And I would just work in and, and, you know, I was on him. I think I got on him six different times and I only got drawn back on him twice out of those. And it was because he just fed the other way and I didn't push it. And I literally, the moment he had committed to going the other way and I did not have a play, I backed out and I had to hike up straight up the mountain, but I knew that that would keep me safe from having him win me. And then I, you know, in my mind, I lived to fight another day. And then the next day he would be in a similar area and I got on him again, you know? And so that's another thing is if the stock, you know, if the odds aren't in your favor, you don't think it's a viable stock, don't push it because if you win these bucks or they win you, they might never come back, you know, or they might get into the trees. And the moment they're in the trees, you might as well just go find a different deer to hunt because that's damn near impossible if they're staying in there, unless you just trip over one and get lucky.
1: Damn. Yeah. That's it's basically kind of like the, the moral, if you will, is, uh, You got to be smart and remain persistent and not give up.
2: Right. Well, and, and, you know, persistence is, is, is key as well, you know, and also staying patient Um, and, but also being in this, in the the physical shape to do it. And the guys that I met out last year, you know, it it was, it was a bitch to get up and down this basin um, to where we were, Dropping into this basin. And, you know, these guys are flatlanders from Nebraska and they're just great guys. But I told them, I'm like, hey, this is going to be a lot. And I go, I want to, you know, this isn't just dropping down in there. And like, I go, we might get lucky and kill something, but I go, you got to be able to do this every day. And I go, potentially, you might go on a stock in the morning, doesn't work out. You jump back up to your glassing knob and didn't do the same thing. So you got to be confident that you can, you know, gain and loss, you know, 4,000, 5,000 elevation feet. And not a lot of people can do that. And that's where the persistence comes off. But then also it's being smart with your stocks. You know, if you don't think that that's an area that you can get to, don't do it. Just wait until the next day. If you have the time, you know? Yeah. Man. But then it also goes into the other thing of like, if you're sharing the basin with a few other hunters, You know, they might not think they might just go out there and blow it out. So you, you also want to be conscious of that, that if you even have a glimmer of hope, take it and try to make something happen out of it because those other guys might not care and they just might blow them out anyways. So
1: man, and you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the whole aspect of being in shape because that's another piece that I wanted to touch on. I mean, you have to take altitude in consideration. Like you're not like this hunt is not for the, the weak hearted. I mean, you're going up to high elevations. You don't know how your body's going to react. This isn't the kind of camp where you're going to be sitting there drinking beer and whiskey all night and then getting up and going and sitting in a deer stand. You know, it's a physically demanding hunt. And I mean, I follow you on Instagram right now and I don't know what the heck you're doing. (laughs) <laughs> but like it looks like you're sweating your ass off every day.
2: Yeah, no. My uh well, and that's part of it. My 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 girlfriend owns a, tri- a a studio and it has what is called a Versa Climber. And if you haven't ever looked it up, I mean, it is the best cardio uh I've ever done. But, you know, that t- even though I'm in Denver and I'm at a mile high and everything else, it still doesn't get you prepared for what you're going to be doing you know, every day in the mountains. And and you know, for me, like tomorrow morning I'm going up with the Kafaro crew and we're hiking red rocks. And you know, I got, I think my pack with the weight and everything is about 58 pounds. And so, you know, that's a big thing that people need to consider. And it's not so much the weight, I would say it's just the feeling of Weight on your hips and on your shoulders. Yes, you know, and you've done, and you, you, you've had, you have a great. I think you have a Kafaro pack. You know, forty-four it, mag. There you go, and it's like you fill that thing up, and yeah, walking around, and, but you keep it on your back for two, three hours. There's muscles that you've got to build up to get there. You know, and I've had a lot of people with, you know, even Kafaro packs or other packs, they hate the way their their hips and their shoulders and their everything just doesn't fit right so training with that is going to be key now obviously as you know you're in Texas people out you know wherever in the flatlands the, mm-hmm. the easterners you know getting as much cardio as you can and and honestly being healthy you know understanding the water intake now I'm saying being healthy I enjoy the burgers the wings and the beers just like all the other dudes out there. But oh, yes. I also well, understand I that even me living in Denver, I could get altitude sickness if I didn't have the training under my belt. And and I actually know people out here that are, were very well trained and still got it, you know? And so, you know, you just got to be conscious of that. And I would recommend anybody coming out here is just if you could get a day where you're spending it maybe in Denver or or a town mountain town getting acclimated because you will feel it i mean you probably when you came out here for tack last year just walking up and down the stairs at the event people are like damn this is crazy you know and and so just trying to do that is going to be you know beneficial to you but you know that is a big part of it because you know, elk hunting, you're kind of methodically moving through and this and that. And even mule deer might not be the most physical once you're on the stock, but you still got to get up there to play the game, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you can't make it, 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 you know, don't even try because you'll just end up getting hurt or, you know, or I I guess I should say, try it and it might not be for you. And and next year you're not going to be doing it. So, you know, but, um, yeah, that's going to be key is that you just got to, you got to make sure that you're in some physical condition. Yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, these are all kind of things that you and I have talked about a little bit beforehand on the podcast is, you know, um, the rise in popularity of Western hunting on YouTube has been absolutely insane up through like 2020, 2021. And I feel like we're starting to see kind of a, a dip, if you will, um, because so many people saw this and it's aspirational, you know, it's that's, it's that romanticized hunting. Like everybody wants to do it. They've seen it since they were a kid. And so they finally went and did it and they didn't take some of these things into consideration. They just thought, Oh, I just need to go out and I just need to go out and get in the woods and I'm going to get lucky. And it's like, okay, yeah, that might be the case. You might be that lucky guy or girl, but the majority of them, I don't think take all these things into consideration. And if you don't, I feel that, uh, you know, it, it could potentially sway you away from going, going out west again, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I, it, like you said, I think we touched on a little bit, um, you know, before we started the podcast. I, I've ran, in the last few years, I've ran into more hunters um, than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Now, I have also been very fortunate. I, I've killed some great animals yeah. when there was a lot of hunting pressure. Um, uh, but yep. I yep. would say the vast majority of these people seem frustrated with it. And, and I think, you know, we talked about it, have we reached the pinnacle, um, especially with just the prices of everything going up, you know, it's, it's not a cheap hunt by no means. Um, but it, it's, I think it's gonna also, you know, the, the people that are persistent and, and can put in the time. They're going to see the value but i also think that like colorado specifically is going to make a change where it's going to start to limit some of the number of of hunter and tag allocations to make it more of a quality hunt because i i i don't i feel bad for some of these folks like i think i mentioned like i've ran into oklahoma pennsylvania wisconsin and all they're saying is we don't see any animals and all we're seeing is people and that is something that can be tough uh, and also a tough pill to swallow when you put in seven hundred dollars on a tag and another thousand dollars to get out here and a couple thousand dollars to get the right gear. But you know, I, I don't know. I, I think we'll we'll see this year. It'll be interesting to see how fuel prices and just costs of everything are changing. Um, is it going to be? Are there going to be less people coming out? You know, I, I don't know that that will that I guess we'll see that in a few months here. Um, you know, as as elk season and deer season kick off, but you got to think it's going to affect the people because you know, like I have a Montana um, elk tag, elk and deer tag this year as well. Add that, you know, to my list of things I got to hunt, but I, I was going to go up in early, you know, for a week in mid September and then go up, um, at the end of. September, October, cause the tag goes through the 15th. Yeah. And now I'm like, man, I'm going to be spending more on fuel just to get there and back. I might as well just stay at a hotel, like go hunt for four or five, six days, regroup in a hotel, do some work and then go back out there versus driving all the way back, you know, whatever, 16 hours, whatever it is. So even for me, it's changing my, my game plans um, You know, and, and strategy and hunting. So I, I know it's going to be affecting people.
1: It's and it's kind of a, it's a bittersweet thing because, and I'm going to refer to what Colorado has already started to do, because a lot of the southern southwest units of Colorado used to be primarily over the counter, and was it two years ago they changed all that into draw tags. Yep. And so I think that's a good thing that they did that because while I say it's a good thing at at the same time, there's a a piece in the back of my mind. It's like, dang, now I can't go to that unit that had that is over the counter. I have to put in for the draw, but like you're saying, it's going to help cool things off to where it's going to be a better hunting experience. And so, yeah.
2: And I think you're right. And I think I, more of the state's going to do that I think it's going to be a combination of those type of of um you know they're just being able to limit the number of tags where when it was otc they truly had no way other than the survey at the end of the season of where did you hunt what did you see where now in that that area they at least have a limit of tags whether they sell them all or not they're going to understand how many hunters are down there and least the harvest of there now I I hope that they kind of change up the tag allocations, you know, for resident, non-resident, and to be a little bit more um, in line with other states around us, Utah, Nevada, or Utah, Wyoming, Montana, like those type. Um, Because I do think the quality of hunting, at least in Colorado, has went down. And that's just not my personal opinion. That's the opinions of people that I'm actually seeing in the field, you know, and, um, hopefully that can change because it would be nice to see people a little bit more excited, um, about their hunt rather than the the whole thing like i was saying on instagram i didn't see any elk but man it was a beautiful time in the woods and now granted there are people that are going to say that but i would say the people that i that i've ran into they at least want to see an elk or or a deer or at least hear a bugle you know i mean it's not like they're spending all this money just to go on nature hikes because you could do that anywhere at any time so you know as I say this, I'm probably just gonna be the one hiking my bow around the mountain, not seeing shit. This <laughs> <year>. <laughs> but I hope that's not the
1: case. No, same here, man. Well, man, I love I love all this that we're talking about. I, th- I think there's gonna be some guys and girls that gonna be heading out there to go chase after some mule deer this fall, and hopefully they'll be able to take some of this and go bag them one. But man, before we part ways, I know we're running out of time here. What's kind of some final parting advice, Mister Joe K? wants to give the listeners.
2: Yeah. Um you know for me it's just put in the work early. Um I I you know I I don't want to say I'm obsessed but I would say I'm pretty damn close to obsessed with it. Um you know spend the time reading the articles. Following the people that have put in the work, you know, the, those premier people that um y- that are sharing good information, you know. Um I am on YouTube all the time looking at videos of people that, you know, even if their video is just terrible, looking at where, if they're seeing deer, what type of train is it in? Is it, is it similar to what you've been seeing? Um, you know, maybe even, even if it's in the same unit that you, that you've hunted, you know, but literally trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together now, rather than having it a week or two before season um to be able to put yourself in a better place to be successful and that not only is e-scouting on online or just getting your gear and and more or less your bow in line to hunt you know and and I say that because I just was at my archery shop and it was kind of dead in there and I'm like what's going on? It's mid June, late J- or you know middle of, of June. And they're like, Joe, everybody will come in after the 4th of July. Everybody needs their site dialed, their boot bow t- tuned, mm-hmm. new strings. And it's like, guys and girls, this is the time now to get all that stuff put into place. So then June or July, August, and then start of the season is there. You already have everything dialed in. And I will also say, I think a lot of people this year are going to realize that whole Amazon one day two day shipping thing, obviously we've all uh, you know experienced it, it's taking longer to so you know, quote unquote supply chain issues. Like get your boots, get your gear, get your stuff all done now so you're not having any you know question about your scouting or your your gear list um, you know a week or two before season or when you plan to come out. I would say that's the biggest takeaway from this podcast is, is right there. Those information, that little bit of information, um, or at least what I'm telling all my close buddies anyways.
1: Proper planning and preparation, man. I love it. Well, Joe, where can we find you on social media and see all the giants that you're killing out <laughs> West?
2: You know, all, uh, uh, social, let me see Instagram and, and Facebook. Those are going to be my top two. Um, uh, Facebook is just Joe Cavanaugh and uh, Instagram is Joe dot Cavanaugh. Um, and that's Cavanaugh with a K. So, but uh, that's, that's where you can find me.
1: Love it, man. Well, really appreciate you hopping on the podcast today to talk about those high country muleys, man.
2: Yeah. I hope it helps some people out. If anybody wants to uh, reach out to me and has any other questions, feel free to slide the DMS and, and I'll, I'll try to help out in any way I can.
1: All right, y'all, there you go. So we got, Joe on here to pick his brain find out how he attacks these high country mule deer and hopefully you'll be able to take some of this this dope info from him and go put you a high country mule down on the ground this fall you know September is not that far away so make sure you're getting your getting everything done make sure you're dotting all your I's crossing all your T's and making sure that you're leaving home in a good place. If you haven't figured out how to do that yet, make sure you go back to a recent podcast episode that we did with Mr. Jeff Bynum talking about how to leave home in a good place when you're gone and hunting with a good conscience. So that way you're not having to worry about home when you're up high or in the mountains chasing after elk, mill deer, whatever you're going after. But again, y'all just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the HuntStand podcast and we'll see you on the next one. tail would not be a big thing but as i've learned no matter where i've
0: been white tails can be damn tricky. pursuing wild game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment